welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the endocrine module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and I thought I'd start us off by talking about the physiology of the thyroid, hyper and hypothyroidism, interpreting thyroid function tests, and we'll go a little bit into thyroiditis and thyrotoxicosis. So let's get started with the physiology of the thyroid. The thyroid secretes thyroid hormones, which are important for the control of metabolism, growth, and many other functions of the body. The thyroid and thyroid hormone is controlled by a self-regulatory circuit called the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. As its name suggests, this axis involves input from the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the thyroid itself. So it starts at the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus releases thyrotropin-releasing hormone, or TRH, which is released into the hypothalamic hypophyseal portal system, which allows the TRH to travel down to the anterior pituitary gland. The TRH then signals in the anterior pituitary for the release of TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone. And this TSH is released by the anterior pituitary into the bloodstream and travels to the thyroid gland. In the thyroid, the TSH then binds to the thyroid-releasing hormone receptor, the TSH receptor, which causes the release of thyroid hormones back into the bloodstream. Thyroid hormone synthesis occurs in the thyroid gland with a five-step process and is heavily dependent on iodine, which is a trace element absorbed in the small intestines. Iodine is found in food, and in Australia, we have this mostly through iodized table salt, and it's also um, enriched in our bread, but it can also be found in seafood, seaweed, and some vegetables. There are areas of the world and also in Australia that iodine levels are low and this is a predisposing factor to the development of hypothyroidism, goiters, cretinism and even myxedema comas. I am about to take you through the steps of thyroid hormone synthesis but before I do that I think it's important to understand the structure or histology of the thyroid. So on a histological slide of a thyroid, you'll see that there are sort of circular areas with a cellular component within them, and these are the follicles. And the follicles are circular or spherical areas that are lined by cuboidal cells, which are the follicular cells. And then the center part of these little circular areas is called the colloid, and this is where the thyroid hormones are stored. Outside of these cells or these follicles, there are further cells which are called the parafollicular C cells and these secrete calcitonin and are also the cells that a medullary thyroid cancer originates from. So going back to the five steps of thyroid hormone creation, the first step is synthesis of thyroglobulin. So the follicular cells create thyroglobulin 
which is a protein that doesn't contain any iodine and is a precursor protein which is stored in the colloid. It's produced in the rough endoplasmic reticulum and then the Golgi apparatus in the cells pack it into little vesicles which are then pushed out into the follicle lumen through exocytosis. The second step is uptake of iodine. This process is upregulated by the protein kinase A phosphorylation, which is actually an end result of TSH receptor binding by TSH. And so the protein kinase A phosphorylation causes an increase in the activity of the sodium iodide symporter, which then causes iodide to be brought in from the circulation into the follicular cells. The iodide then diffuses across the cell and is transported into the colloid as well. This protein kinase A phosphorylation also activates the enzyme thyroid peroxidase, and this is important later when we talk about autoimmune thyroiditis. Thyroid peroxidase, also called TPO, has three functions which basically go about coupling the thyroglobulin and the iodide to create thyroid hormone. So the first step of this is oxidation, and this is oxidation of iodide to iodine. The second step is organification, and this is the linking of thyroglobulin to iodine. And this creates two things. It generates monoiodotyrosine and diiodotyrosine, MIT and DIT. And MIT has a single tyrosine residue with iodine, and DIT has two tyrosine residues with iodine, and the tyrosine residues come from the thyroglobulin protein. The third step is the coupling reaction. And so this is where the TPO then combines the iodinated tyrosine residues, these MITs and DITs, to make T3, which is triiodothyronine, and T4, which is tetraiodothyronine. So T3 is made with one MIT and one DIT. So that's one tyrosine residue with iodine and two tyrosine residues with iodine. So there's going to be three total. And then a T4 is created by two DIT molecules. So that was the third step, iodination of thyroglobulin. The fourth step is storage. And so these newly created thyroid hormones, T3 and T4, are then bound to thyroglobulin and stored in the follicle. Step five is release. And so this is where the thyroid hormones are then released back into the circulation. And the thyrocytes or follicular cells uptake the iodinated thyroglobulin via endocytosis. And then in the cell, these um, lysosomes fuse with an endosome containing iodinated thyroglobulin and proteolytic enzymes cleave off thyroglobulin into T3, T4, and then back into some of those MIT and DIT molecules, which can then be put back into the follicles, thereby salvaging some of the iodine molecules for future use. Typically, there is a much higher ratio of T4 than T3 that's released into the circulation, and T3 is considered the active hormone of the thyroid gland. What happens is that peripherally, in peripheral tissues, T4 is deiodinated into T3, so one of the iodine molecules is removed, and this activates it into the active form of the hormone. This whole process is a feedback process, so as 
the increases levels peripherally of T3 and T4 are released, this feedbacks onto the hypothalamus to reduce the production of TRH and therefore reduce the production of the T3 and T4 hormones into the peripheral circulation. So let's move on to talking about hyper and hypothyroidism. Our curriculum talks about understanding the pathophysiology of hyper and hypothyroidism. And basically it depends on the cause, but they all affect that process that I've just talked about or the pathophysiology of the signaling and messaging for the secretion of thyroid hormone. In general, hyperthyroidism is an increase in the release of thyroid hormones and can happen due to any problems along that pathway we just talked about. The symptoms of hyperthyroidism include overactivity, anxiety or nervousness, weight loss, tremor, diarrhea, heat intolerance, palpitations and infertility. And the symptoms of hypothyroidism are underactivity, described as a depression or sloth-like tiredness, which I think is a little rude. Sloths are awesome. Weight gain, puffy face, constipation, cold intolerability, hair loss, and irregular periods or infertility. When diagnosing hyper or hypothyroidism, there are typically three blood tests that we look at. The first is the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, which we now know is produced by the anterior pituitary gland as part of the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. The other ones we look at are the levels of T3 and T4. And there's about six different potential combinations of results we might get for these three different blood tests that can indicate certain pathologies. So the first one is primary hyperthyroidism or thyrotoxicosis. So this is where you have an elevated T3 and T4 and a suppressed TSH. And the most common cause of this presentation is Graves' disease. Other potential causes include a toxic multinodular goiter or a single toxic thyroid nodule, and also thyroiditis, such as Hashimoto's thyroiditis in the early stages. The next type of blood test result you might see is subclinical hyperthyroidism, and this is where you have a normal T3, T4, but a low TSH. Even though it's called subclinical, it doesn't mean that they won't have symptoms. This is often due to a long-standing multinodular goiter or can be seen in patients with thyroxine over-replacement. So the flip side of those two results are primary hypothyroidism and subclinical hypothyroidism. So primary hypothyroidism is where there is a raised TSH, so it should be increasing the amount of T3 and T4, but there is a low T3 and T4. And the most common cause of this is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Other potential causes include post-total thyroidectomy or post-radioactive iodine ablation and iodine deficiency. Subclinical hypothyroidism is where there is a raised TSH, but the T3 and T4 are normal. And this can be seen during the early stages of Hashimoto's disease. There's two other potential 
combinations of blood tests that you might see. The first is that there is a low or normal TSH, but a low T3 and T4. And this is called secondary hypothyroidism. And this typically occurs in patients who are unwell with a non-thyroidal illness. But if all three of them are low, it can also indicate an underlying pituitary disease. And the last potential combination is where there's a normal or raised TSH, but a raised T3 and T4. And this is very rare and probably indicates either a problem with the tests, so you should repeat them, or sometimes can be due to interfering antibodies that are interfering with the thyroid function assay. The interesting drug that can mess up a thyroid function test is biotin, which is a type of B vitamin that is used as a supplement, often for hair, skin, and nails. And if patients are on high-dose biotin supplements, you should make them stop these before sending your thyroid function blood tests. So for the next part of this episode, I thought I would talk a little bit about thyroiditis. Thyroiditis is an inflammatory condition of the thyroid, and there's a number of different causes of thyroiditis. The main ones of these are Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and this is the most common. Other types include subacute thyroiditis, also called non-suppurative or decurvian's thyroiditis, postpartum thyroiditis, Riedel's thyroiditis, suppurative thyroiditis, radiation thyroiditis, and drug-induced thyroiditis. So the most common type of thyroiditis is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, as I said. And this can be a local or diffuse process involving the thyroid gland. It's often initially associated with a hyperactive thyroid, so hyperthyroidism, but over time leads to hypothyroidism. It's also called autoimmune chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis, which has to do with the pathogenesis of this condition. So it is an autoimmune condition and is related to the presence of antithyroid antibodies. And so these are antibodies against thyroid peroxidase, TPO, which we talked about earlier, and also antithyroglobulin antibodies. These autoantibodies attack the thyroid gland and lead to an infiltration of lymphocytes within the gland with eventual fibrosis and scarring of the gland. The risk factors for the development of this condition is being a female. Age bracket that it's most common is between 40 and 60 years old. And it's also associated with other autoimmune diseases such as diabetes, celiac and Addison's disease. Most patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis are asymptomatic. Those that develop symptoms initially will have enlargement of the gland, which can be diffusely enlarged, rubbery, painless, and usually is non-tender to palpation. And it's very unlikely that the gland would grow to such a size that it caused any obstructive symptoms. Initially, patients may have mild thyrotoxicosis, as I've mentioned, but usually it's not enough to have significant symptoms. And then they develop hypothyroidism as the disease burns itself out over a few years. The diagnosis is typically identifying hypothyroidism on blood tests. 
and you would test for those antibodies we talked about. So you can test for anti-TPO antibodies and antithyroglobulin antibodies. You only need to do an FNA if there's a suspicious nodule or a rapidly enlarging goiter. You don't need to do an FNA for the diagnosis. The blood tests are diagnostic. The management of Hashimoto's thyroiditis is typically medical with replacement of thyroid hormone, typically with a synthetic levothyroxine, which is a type of T4. Usually, you would be giving around 100 to 125 micrograms a day to replace thyroid function, but you need to monitor the TSH six weekly until you reach a steady state um, that you know that you've given enough replacement. Briefly to go over some of the other types of thyroiditis, I mentioned subacute, also known as non-suppurative or decurvians thyroiditis. This is typically caused by a viral infection, usually like an upper respiratory tract infection. It's not clear whether this is due to a viral infection directly of the gland or an immune response to the virus, but it's typically a self-limiting condition where you initially get thyroid swelling and overactivity, leading to a period of hypothyroidism, and then eventually the patient becomes euthyroid again. The management is medical and supportive with analgesia, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and sometimes steroids are required in the acute phase. And then if there's a prolonged hypothyroid phase, they may need a period of thyroxine replacement before eventually when they become euthyroid, not needing any further treatment. The next one I mentioned was postpartum thyroiditis. And this is a period of thyrotoxicosis or hyperthyroidism that about 5 to 10% of women who've previously had thyrotoxicosis but normal thyroid function during pregnancy will experience. And the typical time frame is between 8 weeks and 4 months postpartum, but it can occur for up to 12 months postpartum. Again, this is self-limiting with a hyperthyroid phase to a hypothyroid phase and then back to normal. Typically, the treatment is just to manage the hypothyroid symptoms and the patients may need a beta blocker. And then hypothyroidism may need to be treated for a few months with thyroxine, but it depends on the severity of the symptoms and the levels of the hormones. The next type of thyroiditis I mentioned was Riedel's thyroiditis, which is a super rare type of thyroiditis that's autoimmune and related to IgG4 disease. It leads to a really woody, hard thyroid and is thought to be due to IgG4 excess, leading to inflammatory cells infiltrating into the thyroid and causing intense fibrosis of the thyroid gland. It's associated with multiple manifestations elsewhere, including retroperitoneal, mediastinal, and pulmonary fibrosis, and it also commonly affects the lacrimal glands and the parotid. The fibrosis can cause breathing and swallowing difficulties because the thyroid gets so hard, and they typically end up being hypothyroid in the long term due to destruction of the gland. The treatment is mostly medical, with steroids to treat the autoimmune part of the condition. Tamoxifen can be given to inhibit fibrogenesis and thyroxine treatment once the patient is hypothyroid, but patients may need an operation to split the isthmus if they have issues with the um, breathing and swallowing difficulties due to the thyroid itself. 
it can be very difficult to remove the thyroid due to the fibrosis and scarring in the neck because of this process. The next one is suppurative thyroiditis. And this, as the name suggests, is an infection in the thyroid. This usually occurs in a pre-existing goiter and commonly involves bacterial infections such as with staph, streps, and E. coli, and even Klebsiella. can also be mycobacterium, so TB infections, and rarely parasitic infections of the thyroid. Most of these will happen due to hematogenous seeding, but can also be due to biopsies of the thyroid and can be from direct extension from neck abscesses from tonsillitis, parotiditis, otitis media, or mastoiditis. Typically, these patients will present with fevers, pain, dysphagia, pharyngitis, and an increased CRP. They usually have normal thyroid function tests, and the treatment is really treatment as for infection anywhere in the body. So taking blood cultures, treating the organisms you think is likely to be involved, and drainage of any sepsis. And this would usually be an FNA and aspiration of the pus, but may involve surgical drainage in rare cases. So the last two briefly that I mentioned was radiation thyroiditis, and this is after radioactive iodine treatment where the thyroid can become tender and swollen, and this usually settles spontaneously or may require some steroid treatment. The last is drug-induced thyroiditis, and there's a few drugs that can cause this to occur. The two most common that I've come across in clinical practice is amiodarone and also iodine-containing contrast, like for a CT scan. So we've spent a little bit of time talking about thyroiditis, or an inflammatory condition of the thyroid. The other term that we often come across is thyrotoxicosis, And although a lot of the thyroiditis conditions do have a thyrotoxic phase, thyrotoxicosis itself is where there's an increased level of thyroid hormones circulating in the blood. And this can occur without thyroiditis, if that makes sense. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about thyrotoxicosis, its causes, and also some treatments. So as I've said, thyrotoxicosis is increased levels of thyroid hormone in the blood. The four main causes of thyrotoxicosis are Graves' disease, which accounts for 70%, a toxic multinodular goiter, which is 15%, toxic adenomas, 5%, and thyroiditis, which is 5%. There are some other much rarer types Um, including drug-induced, neonatal, postpartum thyroiditis, as I've already talked about, um, ectopic hyperthyroidism from a TSH-secreting tumor, and pituitary tumors, but we're not going to talk about that today. We've already talked about the clinical presentation of hyperthyroidism or thyrotoxicosis. If patients don't have these features, though, and instead they have subclinical hyperthyroidism, so a suppressed TSH but normal T3, T4, it's important to know that about 5% of these patients will progress to developing clinical thyrotoxicosis per year. And also that even with subclinical hyperthyroidism, patients have an increased risk of atrial fibrillation as well as 
reductions in their bone marrow density or the development of osteoporosis. So it's still important to recognize and treat these patients as well as monitor for the development of thyrotoxicosis. So let's talk about these main causes of thyrotoxicosis in a little bit more detail. So the first is Graves' disease, and this is the most common cause of thyrotoxicosis. It affects women more than men and typically in the second to fourth decades of life. The pathogenesis is the development of an autoimmune condition where they get anti-TSH receptor antibodies, and this stimulates the thyroid to make excess thyroid hormone. Patients will present with symptoms of hyperthyroidism, but also there are some specific signs that are related to Graves' disease. Patients with Graves' disease can present with a problem affecting their eyes, which is called thyroid-associated orbitopathy or Graves' orbitopathy. There are three main subtypes that can affect the eyes. The first is an ocular myopathy, which is where there's fibrosis that affects the extraocular muscles, and this can lead to diplopia, eye muscle dysfunction, and exophthalmus. There's also a congestive ophthalmopathy, where you can get watery and gritty eyes, periorbital edema, conjunctival injection, and exophthalmos as well. And also chronic eyelid lag, which is where you have an inability to completely oppose the eyelids, a lag and retraction of the eyelid, which is a clinical sign, and corneal ulceration. And this is thought to be due to the TSH receptors cross-reacting with some of the tissues behind the eye. And this leads to deposition of mucopolysaccharides in the retroorbital fat, And this can push the eye out and the muscles also become hypertrophic. The eye being pushed out or the proptosis can also lead to loss of protection of the front surface of the eye with corneal abrasions, infections and scarring. And also compression on the optic nerve can lead to vision loss, but this is very rare. Graves' eye disease is much more common in patients who smoke, so it's important to encourage smoking cessation in these patients. The diagnosis of Graves' disease is typically made with blood tests. So patients will have an elevated T3 and T4 and a suppressed TSH. They'll also have positive autoantibodies against the TSH receptor, and they can also have antithyroglobulin and antithyroid peroxidase antibodies as well. A Graves gland is typically hypervascular, and an ultrasound of the gland will usually show diffuse swelling, and it often can appear hyperechoic with a heterogeneous echotexture. The interesting thing as well is when you turn on the Doppler signal, you can see extensive vascular involvement of the gland and this is described as a thyroid inferno so the whole thing is red when you turn on the doppler if you were to do nuclear medicine scans then this would typically show diffuse uptake throughout the whole gland the treatment of graves disease is typically medical with antithyroid drugs there are two main drugs that are used to treat thyrotoxicosis The first one of these is carbimazole, and this interferes with the synthesis of iodothyronine. 
It does this through inhibiting the action of thyroid peroxidase, which if we remember from our pathophysiology of thyroid hormone part, is important in the coupling of iodotyrosines with iodothyronine residues, and therefore this reduces the synthesis of thyroid hormones. The main side effect of carbimazole to worry about is agranulocytosis, which is an effect on the bone marrow. The other medication is PTU, which stands for propyl thiouracil. PTU also inhibits the action of thyroid peroxidase, but it also acts peripherally by inhibiting the conversion of T4 to T3. PTU is typically used in pregnancy and also if carbimazole has not been effective. The main serious side effect we need to know about for PTU is that it can cause liver failure. The next treatment for Graves' disease is radioactive iodine. This treatment involves ingesting a radioactive iodine molecule, I131, which is given as a small dose and absorbed into the bloodstream from the gastrointestinal tract. And because the thyroid is the only tissues in the body that take up iodine, it gets taken up by the thyroid and then concentrated within the gland so that the radiation can be treated just in the gland. It selectively kills thyroid tissues, therefore, rather than other tissues in the body. And often patients get hypothyroidism post-treatment, but this can obviously be treated with thyroid replacement. It can take up to six months to work and sometimes even a second dose after they've had the first treatment. The main thing to know about radioactive iodine is that it is a good treatment for Graves' disease, but it's contraindicated in severe Graves' eye disease because it can make the eye disease worse in up to 15% of patients. The other thing to know is that patients can't get pregnant or breastfeed six months to a year after radioactive iodine treatment. So that's another thing to consider if you're thinking about treatment for Graves' disease. So surgery with a total thyroidectomy is another management option for Graves' disease. Some indications for surgery over medical management or radioactive iodine include if there's a very large gland that's causing compression or pressure symptoms, relapse after drug treatment, if the patient is not willing to have radioactive iodine or if they have a contraindication such as severe eye disease or an intention to get pregnant. And this is the quickest way to make a patient euthyroid. Just briefly, the management of Graves' eye disease includes referral to an ophthalmologist for proper assessment. Patients should be given topical local treatments in order to protect the eye and to reduce discomfort. So these are topical lubricant eye drops. They may need ointments overnight and taping the eyelids shut overnight. They may need to wear glasses to protect from wind and dirt. They need to elevate the head of the bed to reduce swelling and they may need eyelid surgery to manage the severe stare. Other treatments include steroid treatment, treatment of the thyrotoxic state such as with carbimazole or PTU, Surgery, as we've talked about, to reduce the circulating anti-TSH antibodies to reduce the eye problems, and other things such as cessation of smoking, which we've already talked about.
For really severe cases, patients may require immunosuppressant therapy and even plasma exchange or plasmapheresis. And patients can also have radiotherapy, I've definitely seen this, to the retroorbital tissues in order to reduce the size of the tissues and reduce the proptosis. And patients may also need surgery to decompress the orbits if the optic nerve has been threatened. So next topic is toxic multinodular goiter. So the pathogenesis of a toxic multinodular goiter is unclear. Typically happens in older patients and is potentially thought to be due to recurrent periods of thyroid growth and involution, eventually leading to an autonomous nodule which is not under the control of TSH. The diagnosis is with thyroid function tests, and patients will typically have negative antibody tests. A radioactive iodine or a technetium scan will show patchy uptake in the multinodular goiter rather than a single nodule. The treatment is typically medical with antithyroid drugs, but these may not be effective and the autonomous nodules may continue to produce thyroid hormone, especially once the drug is ceased. So definitive treatment can be radioactive iodine if there's a small asymptomatic goiter, but if the patient has a large multinodular goiter and they're symptomatic and they have toxic nodules, then a operation with a total thyroidectomy may be curative in these patients. Next, we have a toxic thyroid nodule. And this is where there is a single nodule or benign adenoma that is producing excess thyroid hormone. The presentation is with thyrotoxicosis or hyperthyroidism. And again, you'll see an elevated T3, T4, but a suppressed TSH and normal antibody tests. A radioactive iodine or technetium 99 pertechnetate scan will show a hot nodule. The treatment of a toxic thyroid nodule depends. Patients can be given low-dose radioactive iodine, which usually has quite good results because the toxic nodule will take up most of the iodine, so that nodule will get the treatment of radioactive iodine. But because the rest of the thyroid is suppressed, it won't really take up the iodine, so often is protected, and therefore patients are typically euthyroid after treatment. And the last cause of thyrotoxicosis I mentioned is amiodarone-induced thyrotoxicosis. Patients can have two types of amiodarone-induced thyrotoxicosis. Type 1 is where patients have a pre-existing thyroid disorder and it leads to upregulated hormone synthesis and the treatment is with antithyroid drugs. Type 2 is where a patient had a normal thyroid before the amiodarone and it's the release of preformed hormones, but because there's an inflammatory infiltrate and destruction of the gland. So this is a type of thyroiditis. This is treated with steroids, and it can be difficult to differentiate which of these two types it actually is. If it's not clear, you treat with both antithyroid drugs and steroids. And if there's no response to medical treatment or patients need to be kept on amiodarone, then you can consider surgery. And the characteristic buzzwords for what the thyroid will look like under the microscope is that there are foamy macrophages in the colloid in the resections for amiodarone-induced thyrotoxicosis. Mm-hmm. 
And that completes our episode on the thyroid. We covered physiology, hyper and hypothyroidism, thyroid blood tests, thyroiditis, and thyrotoxicosis. I found it a little bit hard to think about how to approach all of the thyroid topics, so I hope this was a good introduction, and we'll go on to talk a little bit more about thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer in our next episode. As always, please leave me a review. It makes me really happy to read them. Rate the podcast and subscribe because it makes it easier for other people to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!